This podcast is brought to you by Erickson Immigration Group. Welcome to Immigration Nerds. Author and assistant professor at University of Illinois at Chicago, Adam Goodman joins today. We discuss the deportation machine, America's long history with expelling immigrants. It's his latest book that takes an intersectional look over how authorities have largely used three main mechanisms of expulsion to exert tremendous control over people's lives, determining who can enter the country and regulating who the state allows to remain. I'm Ian Gaines. Come join us Beyond Borders. First, let's start with your background in academia and why you felt it necessary to begin working on Deportation Machine. So I've been working on the Deportation Machine for the last decade. Uh, this is a project mm-hmm. that came out of uh, you know, a number of different personal experiences and professional experience. Before even embarking on my career as a historian, I lived on the U.S.-Mexico border in the Rio Grande mm-hmm. Valley uh, in okay. South Texas, and I saw there the ways that immigration policy affected people's lives and affected the region as a whole and affected the United States and Mexico. So that experience combined with uh, around 2008, 2009, 2010, there's a lot of attention on the Obama administration's immigration policy and young people across the country who came out as undocumented and unafraid. And I became curious about the longer history of immigration policy and the ways that people had fought for more just and humane policies. And then the third thing that really brought me to this project into the book and to what ended up being the next decade of my life uh, was a startling discovery in the archives. And that was that the United States has deported 57 million people during the last 140 years. Wow. And in fact, during the last century, the country has removed more people than it's allowed to stay on a permanent basis, which led me to this larger question of what kind of nation is the United States? Wow. I think what's key in your analysis is that you identify three mechanisms of immigrant departure. And it seems like the focus is around these three, formal deportation, voluntary departure, and self-deportation. So over the 10 years of (laughs) research, it seems that you've kind of put it in those three buckets. So uh, how do each of these uh, sort of differ from one another? This was a big realization for me and what, you know, I think led to some of the contributions that my book, The Deportation Machine, makes. Mm -hmm. And that's most people have focused on the first category you mentioned, formal deportations, Mm -hmm. which historically were by order of an immigration judge. Although in recent years, that's become less true. It's oftentimes expedited means they're now uh, expelling people from the country and they have few, if any, chances to fight their cases. Hmm. But uh, what I realized was that the vast majority, and you know, I'm talking 85 to 90% of the 57 million deportations in the last 140 years, they have happened through voluntary departure. Now, that is a euphemism, if I've ever heard one. Uh, there's nothing voluntary, <laughs> voluntary about these departures. Air quotes. Exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and these are administrative expulsions. They were carried out by low-level immigration officials. And this is what really kept the deportation machine running. Mm-hmm. And to give listeners a sense of what I mean here by voluntary departure, these occurred after an immigration or border patrol agent apprehended someone mm-hmm. and pressured them to sign a piece of paper, 
foregoing any right to fight their case and also avoiding a long detention stay perhaps as their case played out mm-hmm. and agreeing to leave the country voluntarily, supposedly. Uh, and they pressured people into doing this because they didn't have the resources to detain people or to hold hearings for everyone. And that mm-hmm. limited immigrants due process and also kept the deportation machine humming along. Uh, you know, without these voluntary departures, the immigration enforcement bureaucracy would have come to a grinding halt. Mm-hmm. And I liken voluntary departure in the book to the role that, you know, plea bargains play in the criminal justice system, right? Mm-hmm. If everyone who faced criminal prosecution had a hearing uh, in a formal case, the system would not be able to mm-hmm. accommodate even a small mm-hmm. fraction of those cases. And the immigration enforcement apparatus, the deportation machine, as I call it, was the same. Without voluntary departures, things would have come uh, to a screeching halt. Now, the third category you mentioned, just very briefly, are the self-deportation campaigns that historically played out at the local level, at the state level, at federal level. Sorry, sorry. I was just saying that sounds very similar to voluntary departure. So I was trying to understand the difference between those two, voluntary and self-deportation. So this is an important point. I'm glad you brought it up. Mm-hmm. The difference between voluntary departure and self-deportation is that you know, voluntary departure happens after an immigration agent apprehends someone and coerces them into foregoing their right to fight their case and leaving the country. Mm-hmm. So an apprehension has taken place. Self-deportation, more or less, was a tactic the government has relied on historically to make people's lives so miserable that they decide to pick up and leave without ever coming into contact with immigration officials. And sometimes this happened uh, at the local, state, federal level because of policies implemented or threats, or in many cases, actual violence. Wow. Yeah. And basically using fear tactics to coerce immigrants. So um, when we think of the use of these fear tactics to influence self-deportation, of migrants specifically. What comes to mind is the anti-Chinese expulsion campaign during the 1800s, and more specifically, the Truckee method, which is new to me. Uh, So uh, I wonder uh, if you could sort of explain the Truckee method and what that was and how it came to be. I think the Truckee method will be new to most readers uh, and (laughs) listeners. Uh, It was new to me when I came across it. But as I discovered doing archival research in the late 19th century in the town of Truckee, California, in the Sierra Nevada, near Lake Tahoe, uh, there's a man named Charles McGlashan. And McGlashan, you know, we might think of a Renaissance man, a 19th century Renaissance man who did a little bit of everything. He was a botanist, he was an entomologist, he was a historian, a journalist, a lawyer. He was also the editor of the local paper. And he was a virulent anti-Chinese nativist who developed new methods, supposedly nonviolent, but as I show in the book, I think violence played a big role in these campaigns, to get Chinese people to leave the town and ultimately to leave the United States. So they established economic boycotts. They pressured uh, white employers to dismiss their Chinese laborers and threatened to call people out for hiring Mm -hmm. Chinese workers. And they also, relied on sometimes apocalyptic violence and the threat of violence to push people out of their region and ultimately out of the country. And thousands of Chinese left the United States 
in the late 19th century as a result of such campaigns, which as I show in the book, ultimately led the federal government to enact legislation such as the Chinese Exclusion Act. So these mm -hmm. local activists, they wanted to use self-deportation as a way to scare people out of the country, but they also wanted the federal government to establish new legislation limiting people from coming to the country and also expelling those who are already here. Right. And those tactics, which sort of came up in my mind, is eerily similar to uh, the treatment of Black Americans in America, right? Falsely accusing a person of sexual assault, right? And then basically taking street justice. This will, was happening to uh, Chinese Americans at the time. And also, uh, burning down Chinatown, right? And you think of, you know, Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, there is, you know, like history uh, doesn't repeat, but it finds a way to rhyme, right? <laughs> in terms yeah, that's of right. the tactics used. Um, so that was something that I thought was, was definitely eye-opening. And then somehow this deportation targeting refocus to Mexicans um, starting during the Great Depression and honestly up until today, right? <laughs> really. Um, why the shift of focus to this demographic? So the shift in focus to the targeting of Mexicans has a lot to do with the history of immigrant exclusion and also the United States reliance on immigrant labor during the last century and a half. So the Chinese, you know, built much of the transcontinental railroad uh, Japanese agricultural workers you know, were needed and depended on in the fields of the West and Southwest. But after Chinese exclusion and then migrants from Asia more generally were barred from entering the United States after the 1924 mm -hmm. Immigration Act, mm -hmm. employers and the nation as a whole looked more and more south toward Mexico for supply of immigrant labor. Key to that was the fact that the immigrant labor supply was not permanent and was exploitable. So as Mexicans came to make up a larger part of the immigrant labor force in this country, they also were disproportionately targeted by immigration officials. And this system worked for the federal bureaucracy because they could show through apprehensions and rising numbers of deportations that they were doing their job and request additional congressional funding. But it also worked for employers and in turn consumers you know, who benefited from cheap labor and cheap consumer products. Right. I'm still trying to understand the tactics used in that, right? Because it seems like it's um, being directed from all angles, right? On a policy level, on a, a social, cultural intimidation <laughs> level. So, um, but starting with policies, what was um, one of the first major policies that were enacted to limit the entry of immigrants during this period? So. I would start with the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, you know, followed by the Gentlemen's Agreement between the United States and Japan, which more or less mm -hmm. cut off labor from Japan. The and Gentlemen's the, Agreement. Okay. That's right. It's called the Gentlemen's <laughs> Agreement, which right. is basically a way to exclude Japanese laborers with a nod and a wink, kind of a handshake mm -hmm. between the two countries, as opposed to passing a formal piece of legislation. Right? So the United States you know, relied on that in Japan kind of succumbed to that pressure as well. And then a series of acts in the 19 teens and 20s, which cut off uh, the large number of European immigrants, mostly from Southern and Eastern Europe that had entered the country in the last 40 years. So by 1924, most of the immigrant labor 
into the United States was limited from Asia and limited from Europe. And that led more people to turn toward Mexico and Mexicans both could enter the country, although they weren't always allowed to stay on a permanent basis. Mm -hmm. uh, and they became both the required labor supply. And they also benefited from, you know, from that agreement because the wages they could earn in the United States you know, were higher. But I should mention mm -hmm. that 90% of deportations throughout U.S. history have been of Mexicans. The history of deportation from wow. the United States is largely a story of expelling Mexicans. And many people have been expelled on multiple occasions. Mm -hmm. right? So that reality, the possibility of being apprehended, the fear that people lived with, knowing that they could have an encounter or confrontation with an immigration official, and then detention followed by deportation, that was a fact of life for many Mexicans uh, who are here in the United States without documents in the middle to latter part of the 20th century. Right. The revolving door effect. Right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And I think there's a real cost there. Some people had argued this revolving door effect benefited the immigration service, again, because they could show Congress that they were doing their job and request mm -hmm. higher appropriations. And it benefited employers by maintaining that exploitable labor source that they needed. And but what I show really clearly in the book is that we're missing a key piece here, and that's looking at the experiences of migrants themselves. Yes, it was easier for people to return to the United States in the 1970s and 80s because the border wasn't yet as militarized as it would later become. But there was a real individual and cumulative effect of targeting people repeatedly for apprehension and deportation. You know, and people stopped going to the markets, they stopped going to the stores, they stopped going to church because they were fearful of being apprehended. And I did many oral histories and interviews with people that it would have sounded like they could have been you know, done last week uh, or last month, mm. you know, but they're from the late 1970s and early 1980s. And then as a whole, the fact that immigration officials targeted Mexicans so disproportionately created this larger idea of Mexicans as the stereotypical or prototypical illegal alien, quote unquote. Mm. And I think right. you know, that has gone a long way uh, toward you know, in turn, creating a harmful ideas, inaccurate or misleading ideas about who is and who is not an American, you know, who has a right to be in this country and, you know, um, who has to go. Right. Absolutely. And then somewhere along the line, deportation became big business with detention centers and just in general mass incarceration of immigrants and the like. So how did the evolution of commodifying immigration expulsion begin? Where did that start? So I traced the roots of the commodification of migrant bodies right? and people making a profit off of deportation into the early decades of the 20th century. And it really picks up in the middle decades of the century and certainly has continued on and expanded since then. But I have a chapter that examines the transportation companies that profited from the misery of non-citizens who are being expelled from the country. And I should mention, these were not just U.S. companies, but they were private, for-profit Mexican companies. Wow. Okay. Com companies from other parts of the world that also tried to get in on this business because right. they were looking to make a buck. Um, and that had real detrimental effects, as one might imagine, for the conditions under which people were expelled. But it also served an ulterior motive of the immigration service, and that was to punish migrants. Right? We've sometimes heard in recent years about prevention through deterrence which is the idea that will make the conditions so difficult that people will decide they're not going to come to the United States. 
whether that's militarizing the border and pushing people out into more desolate, deadly areas, or under the Trump administration, the separation of you know, Central American asylum-seeking families in detention. Mm-hmm. Now, in the 1950s, you know, they did this through what was called the boat lift. There was an operation that took nearly 50,000 Mexicans across the Gulf of Mexico, 550 miles in grueling conditions on cargo ships that were meant for bananas, mm-hmm. but in those same holds in which the fruit was stored, officials and these private companies deported Mexican migrants with the idea being that they would never want to come back to the United States after such right. uh, harrowing experience. And in some cases that worked, and in many cases it did not. But I think it's important that we connect profits and profit motive that's driven immigration policy to punishment, which has long been at the center of policy as well. Right. Man, this, this is being attacked on all angles. <laughs> the economic front, the social and cultural stereotyping and nativist policies. It's a full intersectional approach and systematic just here and now is like, okay, well, what do we do about this? What can we do? <laughs> um, so let's say, what are some agencies and initiatives that are going on right now that's helping to combat this trend? So I think that, you know, we need to recognize that people have been fighting against the deportation machine, you know, since its inception. Mm-hmm. And they've done so in a variety of ways, right? They've taken to the streets, they've marched, they've protested, um, they've demanded you know, better treatment, more humane conditions, and fair treatment before the law as well. Right? So they've taken to the courts. Right. Right? They've fought their individual cases. They filed class action lawsuits. And there's all, they've also applied uh, public pressure right? and relied on the media and relied on the appeal to, you know, I think, people's common decency and sense of belonging mm-hmm. um, that everyone in this country, you know, is deserving of basic rights, civil rights, human rights. And oftentimes, historically, we know that that has not been the case. Uh, And this is, you know, a a key piece that I think in recent years, we've seen an increasing number of organizations take up. And many people, I think, have become more aware of punitive immigration policies in the last few years under the current administration. And in some sense, immigration advocates have recognized that this presents a certain opportunity. Having a common enemy can be useful in getting people out getting one's mm-hmm. message out and gaining support for one's cause. So, you know, in recent years, I think we've seen groups like the ACLU, we've seen groups of legal aid organizations as well, and then longstanding activist groups like United We Dream, Organized Communities Against Deportation here in Chicago, where I'm based, Raices in Texas, you know, who are fighting this multi-pronged battle I think on behalf of migrants and on behalf of community members and on behalf of basic rights of due process that has been stripped from the system largely. And that I think most Americans and people in this country would agree there should be a bare minimum of what all people should have if facing punitive measures, including expulsion. Right. Deportation machine. (laughs) And I, I thank you for the, the work that you've done and the research and the amount of time that it takes to really go throughout the entire history, the American history of uh, these policies and basic governing strategies. This is a perspective that's, that's definitely needed. I appreciate that. You know, and I would just add you know, one final thing, and that's mm-hmm. I trace the history of 140, 150 years 
you know, the bipartisan support for the deportation machine, right? It's not something that emerged during the Trump administration, the Obama administration, and under George W. Bush or Bill Clinton, right? There's a much longer history here. But I also want to drive home the point that you know, there's no sense of inertia or inevitability that things can't change moving forward. And it's been actors at each step of the way who have benefited or profited you know, from the policies as they are, and they've you know, extended them moving forward. And there's nothing to say that those can't change in the future. And, but it's only through organizing and activism and sustained struggle that that'll happen. You know, it's not by luck, it's not by hoping, you know, it's through organizing and fighting yeah. as so often is the case. Right. As it always is, as it always is. That's right. Well, Adam, I thank you for coming on. For your next book, I gotta have you back on and we, we can do this again. I would love that. I really appreciate the opportunity to discuss the book and I look forward to hearing from listeners and readers. Thank you to Lee Researcher, Con Branch, Assistant Producers Luke Bianco and David White, and music by Brandon Williams. Follow Immigration Nerds on Twitter at IMMNerds and Erickson Immigration Group on LinkedIn to join in the conversation. I'm Ian Gaines. See you next week.